Hey podcast, welcome back to another episode. Now I think you'll really, really enjoy today's episode. Now today we've got Dr. Gareth Jones on, who's a coach at A-Line Coaching. So he's a mountain bike coach and I'm going to read this so I get it absolutely spot on. Um, he also has a PhD in behavioral health psychology and sports and exercise psychology. So to break that down into a nutshell is he knows absolutely tons about improving your riding, both from a skills point of view, but also from a mental point of view. So I I hope you really enjoy the listen. We'll get straight into it. Thank you. Gaz, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah. No my worries. first question might be completely off air, so just tell me if I'm wrong. But am I right in thinking that you spend time in New Zealand as well as Sheffield? I don't personally, unfortunately. Oh, okay. uh, the guy who started A-Line Mountain Bike Coaching, John, he <sighs> lives out there. And um, so he was running uh, A-Line for a number of years, um, kind of helped kind of set it up and, uh, well, actually created it and so on. And then uh, we started working together and then he moved out to New Zealand and I uh, took over A-Line UK. So we now have like a sort of joint venture where he does stuff out in New Zealand and I do stuff in the UK. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately it's not quite as glamorous <laughs> as I, I get to go out to New Zealand a couple of times a year or, or, or throughout, the, uh, throughout the winter or so on. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I look after the UK side. Uh, okay, so do a lot of your customers go out there to ride then and vice versa or are they kind of... Uh, they've got a point of contact, so yeah. there has been people that we've known that have kind of been out to New Zealand, not necessarily because of A-Line, but because of, uh, you know, it's a pretty nice mountain biking destination, yeah, and so, yeah. on. so they've gone out and they've used, um, you know, spoken with John about, um, you know, where to ride or whatever, or they've met up and done guided rides or, or, or whatever, but yeah, we don't, we're not like a, a holiday company in that side of things, but just happen to be in New Zealand and in Sheffield, UK. So you've just partnered up with Ben, haven't you? Who we had on the podcast about two months ago. Yeah. And yeah. now A-Line is kind of, oh, it's not, you're not necessarily going separate, are you? But you're both focusing on different specialities. Is that right? Yeah. So we both basically came to a realization that we wanted to grow our respective companies. Um, so me being A-Line and Ben being WeRide. And that it was hard to do that on on your own sort of thing and to grow the company you obviously need more 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 people like ha having more resource would help um but the problem with that is is finding the right person yeah. it's really difficult because typically the right person is probably already started another coaching company or or, or so on so like yeah. ben was ben at we ride we were kind of a line and so on so um there are various things that kind of put us together like we we knew each other previously like um uh, obviously both operating in around similar sorts of areas both in coaching uh we kind of had a whatsapp group between a, a few of us coaches sort of thing just to you know triangulate you know coordination so we don't like run into each other or like uh, okay. aim like, like plan to use the same part of the trail at the same day that sort of stuff Got you. so we kind of we'd known about it in being in conversation for a long time and then we decided um for various reasons just to have a, a conversation so we, we kind of met down uh, at a coffee shop not far away and just um kind of put a, an idea to ben basically just saying what do you think about kind of joining forces a little bit and um i didn't say i didn't go into that meeting like knowing what that would look like but um we kind of we were both open to the idea and through conversation we kind of came up with a bit of a plan so a line now is the coaching arm yeah. so we are the kind of deliver all the coaching and we ride they did uh ben did coaching and guiding uh, and so now uh, we ride is becoming like the the guiding side of things right yeah okay. so it complements really well yeah so yeah. both both brands still exist and both yeah. companies still exist 
um, but a bit more tailored, a bit more specific. Ah, okay. And I bet a lot of people end up going to the other one without necessarily wanting that initially. So you might sign up to do some guided riding in the peaks, yeah. find out you're struggling on that, and then he sends you over to you. Yeah, 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 definitely. And and Ben, um, both of us deliver um, coaching. So yeah. both of us do coaching under A-line. Um, but I don't have any guiding qualifications or, okay. or like specifically. Um, so Ben looks after the guiding and, and he'd done that before, like up in uh, the Lake District and a bit of uh, Scotland and so on. So kind of just joined forces and, you know, sometimes it's just nice having another colleague, so to speak, yeah, like yeah. You know, kind of um, kind of jump ideas between or bounce yeah. ideas off each other and so on. And uh, so that was another big advantage of it. Like, um, and also when everything kind of is weighted on one person's shoulders, if you're for whatever reason poorly or whatever, yeah, you'd normally have to cancel that um, that session. Um, and a, a huge thing for me and for, for A-Line is uh, the client um, kind of experience with, with A-Line. And nobody wants a cancelled session. So yeah. actually having two of us um, it allows for any sort of um, kind of fine-tuning of, you know, if someone's poorly, yeah. could someone else cover that session? So we've just got another opportunity then to to kind of make sure that the client experience is really good. Yeah. Yeah. So what, do you get a whole range of types of people who end up coaching? Because I think, I could be totally wrong here, but I imagine that the, I think every mountain biker would benefit from coaching. But I bet if you were to stop people at Bike Park Wales and ask if you've been coached before, I imagine that a tiny percentage will yeah. have actually done coaching. Would you agree? Yeah, it's really interesting. So like the culture in mountain biking hasn't necessarily been sort of pro coaching in a way. It, coaching for whatever reason has sometimes had a bit of a stigma around it that it's oh. for, for beginners okay, or it's yeah. for early, you know, um, you only need that if you've got a kind of a problem sort of thing. Yeah. And you just need to fix that problem as opposed to actually it being about performance enhancement. Um, and I'd say probably before I even started coaching sort of eight, nine years ago, um, that was slowly changing. But as with any coach, it it, it doesn't happen overnight and it, it takes a bit of time. Um, so yeah, I'd say it's becoming more and more acceptable to kind of uh, have uh, coaching uh, and kind of be, you know, said you've, you know, you've been uh, or, or received some form of coaching. Yeah. Um, and I'd say that is representative in our client base as well it has become less and less it's about fixing a problem as opposed to it's also about I just want to get better yeah. or I want to, I, I know I can jump, but I, I don't know how to get better at jumping yeah. or, you know, that sort of thing. So it's not just about fixing a problem. It's also about performance enhancement. Okay. Um, so, that, you know, we get more races now, for example, yeah. saying, oh, I'm attending a race, at, you know, really common ones like Hard Rock or Hard Moors. And yeah. it's no longer conversation of, I want to go there and um, just want to be able to get round or, I, I, you know, I don't want to injure myself or, you know, these kind of like negative kind of connotations. It, it's more around or more often it's about, uh, you know, I got 20th place last year or 30th place. How do I get 25th? Oh, okay. uh, yeah, 25th or like 15th or 10th know or, mean, yeah. you know, improve your performance that way. So, yeah, it's, been, it's, it's really good. Yeah. It's interesting that because in any other sport, if you look at football, for example, like we were talking about before, every footballer has a team of coaches and they have a team of coaches for every area don't they so mm. like nutrition and physio and pts and yeah, yeah. obviously the actual skill side of it because i think it's beneficial to have somebody watching you and tweaking i've seen myself a few times when 
uh, Zach will be recording me and then you watch something back and they're like, I thought my chest was way lower. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you're going down the descent and you kind of yeah. drop your chest a bit yeah. and in your head, you think that you've dropped your chest to the bars and then you yeah. look and you've like barely, barely, like, yeah, barely yeah. bent them. <laughs> Same thing for like, say, manual. And you're like, do a manual and in your head, your bum is nearly touching the rear wheel and then yeah. you watch it and you're nowhere near where you think you are. Yeah. Um, so we talk about that loads is like the feedback loop. So it's like really common, like, um, and I do this myself, I'm not, not bashing it at all, but like, you know, watch a YouTube video on it. But the problem with that is one, it's disconnected in time, but two, it's disconnected in that the feed, the um, information is only going one way. So it's coming from the, the person who's created the video to the, uh, to the recipient. And then they're perhaps going away having some dinner or it might even be the next day they think about implementing that. And uh, there's no like feedback loop there to say, oh, actually, um, we're not quite doing what you think you're doing. And here's a video, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take that video. And actually, it's not just about you need to get your chest low, but we often talk about like the mechanics, like how do you do that? Why do you do that? And so on. So it's about, for me, a lot of the time, it's about building that that whole picture. Um, for me, I personally think very sort of holistically. I have to know why, I have to know how, uh, you know, all these kind of more finer details and I think that's really, really important to kind of emphasize and get across. And, um, uh, and I think a coach, having a coach helps give you that feedback loop. Yeah, cool. So what kind of, when people come to you and they say, I want to go from 30th at hard rock to 20th or from 500th to 400th. Yeah. How do you figure out what they need to do to break forward that time? Speaking of the post, you yeah, said, I told you, you. It would come. I told you, <laughs> bang on time, aren't they? Yeah. So how how do you know somebody comes to you as a rider and they say they want to get better? Yeah. How do you know where to start if they're not telling you I need to improve X? Yeah, I mean, even when they say that they need to improve X, you, not that you you don't um, you take it on board. Of of course you do because it's a piece of information um but you take it with a slight pinch of salt because really it's about like that quality of data that first of all it's about understanding and kind of knowing exactly um uh trying to gather as much data as you can really before you kind of assimilate a kind of a strong plan if you will um it, it depends on what the client really wants um so some like i work with clients like routinely for, for weeks months years some it's kind of like they just join like the odd um, uh, course like once a year or a couple times a year. Um, some people it's like a bit more sporadic. You kind of have a huge kind of mixture in between. But it's really about trying to get as much of a broad picture and as much data as you can from that person to really kind of assimilate well, what what do they want to achieve? What is their kind of limiting factors? And, and kind of kind of similar to the fitness industry really saying well we need to figure out where you are right now actually and kind of go from there so what that looks like in reality again it's different for everyone we're very client-based or kind of client-centered sorry so um we don't have a one-size-fits-all kind of ethos it's all about working with the clients and so on um but it could be come on a course because we can quickly um support you uh, in quite a broad sense on a course and we can like we always watch quite intently like what riders are doing and so on um and then from there if somebody would like to kind of continue work and continue progressing on it like they like what they've heard and so on um we then come up with more tailored programs so that can be like through private tuition and all that sort of gubbins really but yeah it's quite we need to see the rider ride because yeah. Um, 
often riders talk in outcomes and symptoms. Um, so they talk about like, uh, I can't jump or I, I don't know how to go further in a jump. So they're talking about outcomes there. Okay. Um, I can do that jump, but I can't do that jump. So a really common one, you know, we're in Sheffield and it is up at Grenoside Wood, for example. I can do those tabletops, but I can't do X or Y. Yeah. Uh, or I can't do some of the gap jumps, for example. And instantly in my head, if they're doing the tabletops, yeah. but they're not doing the gap jumps, perhaps that's more psychological. Yeah. So therefore the plan I might be thinking about creating is about actually supporting that psychology and um, uh, building up that kind of more evidence-based approaches and so on to support their psychology, to think that um, uh, as they kind of progress, that they're, they're also thinking about what they're doing and how they're doing it and building up that evidence base so that they they build their confidence and so on. Um, or it might be a more technique-focused type thing. So it really just depends on kind of getting that data and uh, getting get as much data as you can and and really going out for a ride with someone, yeah. uh, whether that's on course or private or, or whatever yeah. that might be. Because um, it, it can be so many different things. So like one thing you'll often hear me talk about in coaching is I talk about limiting factors. Uh, and we don't mean that in a negative sense. Everybody's got them, you know, me, you, uh, Steve, Pete, you know, you know, all of us, um, every rider's got them. Uh, and it's normally those, and the things that really stand out to clients on a coaching day are the things that we've talked about that address their limiting factor. Okay. Because that's the thing where it's like that will make the biggest difference on their performance today. But then as they typically work on that, it's not to say that the other stuff we covered isn't important. It 100% is. It just hasn't necessarily addressed their limiting factor. Yeah. And as they then start to work on that, that kind of really stands out to them. They get less of a return on that. And then all of a sudden, something else is their limiting factor. Got so when somebody says, I'm struggling with jumping or drops or corners or, you know, like another really common one is front wheel washouts or whatever. Yeah. There can be seven or eight different reasons as to why that's happening. So we need to get as much data as we can to understand why. Is it a body mechanics thing? Is it a breaking thing? Yeah. Uh, you know, it can be all sorts of things. Is it even like a bike setup thing? It's very rare we kind of um, really give a kind of hard advice on bike setup. But, it, you know, if it's really obviously wrong, then we can yeah. support on that. That makes sense. So when you say limiting factor, how do you define that? Does that just mean a weakness or not? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I try not to use that that word too much, like improvement areas or where's the greatest area for growth and, and so on. But yeah, essentially, sort of, I'm uh, just trying to think now, like a, a really common one um, on the kind of lower end of the spectrum for, for riders is um, core strength. Oh, okay. um, and if a rider like has a, a weaker core strength what yeah. you tend to find is as they go through certain ranges of motion as they go through certain um movements and so on their hips like rotate underwards uh, uh, okay. under yeah so in other words as their hips rotate under their chest opens up so it gets uh, more kind of vertical if you will uh and their legs kind of push forward so they're using their quads more yeah uh, and they're kind of the distribution of their their body mass is is over a smaller point and what that then creates is like a, a symptom of that um poor body mechanics or, or, or less desirable body mechanics is you then get this sort of pendulum effect of that body mass moving between the front and rear tire and that's where you get unpredictability in how the bike feels and how the suspension works and the tires work and all that sort of stuff um so we'd be first looking to address that before we start to think about elbows and you know other types of things so it's it's really what is the 
they've got an outcome. We've got a, an aim. What's the what's the real kind of linchpin to what is preventing that person from doing that? And there's normally more than one. Yeah. There often are. You've got to mountain biking. You know, I often describe it's, it's not cycling. It's really really yeah. dynamic. It's very yeah. specific, and it there's so many things going on. Like um, people, I think often try to simplify it, but actually it's it's very complex. Um, we can then come up with strategic and simplified kind of solutions so it doesn't overwhelm you. But um, it's uh, it is a complex sport, and so there's often more than one reason yeah. as to why somebody's doing something that's less desirable or not. So you said that a really common one that people have there is a weak core, and you can see it as a coach. How would somebody if the, if they didn't get a coach? How would somebody know that they had a weak core and it was affecting the riding? Okay, so uh, so we're talking about the coach's eye there, I guess, a little bit. So when we go um, and we're watching riders and so on, one of the things I'm looking for when uh, a rider does this, for example, or has this symptom uh, very specifically, is they will, um, as they come into a feature, so say they understand roughly a good body position. Yeah. And so they're in a, you know, a really, relatively good, red, what I call it a ready position. Yeah. Um, uh, as you kind of come down a trail in a good ready position. As they come into features, yeah. so that could be, you know, any sort of significant feature uh, on a trail, whether that's a rock garden or or, or a corner or, or whatever that might be, that feature causes that symptom. So as they come through a corner, for example, you notice their body stand more upright and their hips tuck closer, like, get further in like in the middle of the bike as yeah. opposed to keeping nice and strong and stable between your two wheels essentially um so that's how we'd normally uh, understand it so if you were a rider without a coach um I- i'd suggest getting some friends to film you okay uh, yeah. that's, that's some of the best feedback because as you mentioned earlier on Sometimes you think you're doing something, yeah. but you're not always. Yeah, uh, yeah. And video feedback is such a, a great way. And I encourage all my clients to do that. So you know, one of the big take homes that are, you know, one of the big sort of ending sentences at the end of any coaching day is, um, you know, a, a bit, any coaching day is a big bit of knowledge transfer. And one of the things I always tell clients is that I'm trying to support them to be the coaches at the end of the day. So my language changes during the day. So at the start, it's very instructional and so on. But by the end of the day, I'm more asking questions for them to tell me what they think. So like self-diagnose essentially. And in by doing that, not only am, am I uh, able to hear that they have learned because um, they're, they're starting to diagnose why and what from what we've kind of talked about in the day, but then also um, they've, they're, they're showing understanding and they're showing actually when I'm no longer here, as in like the next day, if they go out ride next week or whatever that might be, um, they can take a video and they can start to understand why it is that the symptom or the outcome that, that they kind of they've got is, is occurring. They can start to address it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, expectations is something we always talk about in A-Line and I talk about a lot and people's, I don't, not all people, like I obviously don't want to speak for everyone, but, um, a lot of people's expectations don't necessarily match their overall like plan. Yeah. So like what they want to achieve, like I really want to achieve jumping is like a really common one. I really want to get better at jumping. I was like, okay, so how often do you <laughs> out practicing jumps? I don't. Okay. So maybe that's part of, so how do you expect to get better yeah, at jumping? Yeah. I, mean, I don't mean that in like a, no, 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 but it's like sometimes yeah, people, it's like often around avoidance, people yeah. um, avoid the yeah, thing that they feel nervous about or yeah. things are not as good at. 
Um, and that's not necessarily a problem, but it doesn't make you a well-rounded yeah. rider. So when I look at any rider, I try to support them to be... Uh, have you ever used like performance wheels or anything like that? No, I've so like, that. You imagine like a pie chart. Yeah. Divide it uh, in, into as many pieces as you need to. That's your like your, your performance, what makes up performance. Okay. And then rate yourself on like one to 10, basically, okay. on, on all of those different areas. Yeah. One of the, the, the common issues and where people find they've got a problem is where... Um, and this is all relative to the person. So the numbers arbitrary really, but it's good for you to know your own sort of numbers and so on. So if you rated yourself at a, a five for most things of riding, your trail speed will naturally be at a relative five out yeah. of 10 for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then all of a sudden you'll come to say jumping just as, as an example. Um, and that'll be a two out of five, but yeah. you're going trail speed. That's a five out of five. Yeah. So all of a sudden that's where you start to cause issues. So yeah. Again, when we work with riders, and especially over the long term, um, we really try to round that profile out as much as possible to minimise risk and so on, so that everything is that five. So as they come across jumps or drops and steep sections, routes, whatever, they're going the right trail speed for whatever they're kind of doing. Um, and then we, we slowly expand that all quite consistently and together over time. Okay. So yeah. what are the what are some of those areas then? So am I right in thinking the performance wheel, the spokes and the numbers? Yeah, yeah, yeah I have yeah. seen. I do know what you mean. Yeah. Um. So you've got would jumping be one of those trail speed, or is it different? There yeah. isn't a set one. So there are typical ones. Yeah. Um. But I, I check. We tend to, it depends how you're working with the client, to be honest. The more bespoke your work, so, or the more, uh, uh, the closer you're working with the client, the, the more detailed you can go with this. But yeah. I think it's important to use the client's language. Um, so they kind of come up with their own kind of oh, definitions okay. of lots of things. But then there's also, you could talk, you could have your own, uh, depending on the client, again, some of them like to think really broad picture. So they don't necessarily want... Um, a separate nutrition skills performance fitness base you know a, a performance wheel for each they yeah. just might want a general one yeah some people are really granular and really detailed and therefore they do they do want a kind of a separate kind of performance wheel for for each one of those things so you could then i don't, don't know much about nutrition personally but you could then go into like within the nutrition it'd be like macro and all these different like um, yeah. nutritional values and so on and then it could be within skills. You could look at all the different skills that you kind of typically cover, like jumping drops and and so on. But then some people then have a very specific um, area that they want to work on. So then it'll be a really specific kind of identified spoke in their yeah. in their performance wheel, for example. So like off camber left handers. Yeah. Like okay. If they're noticing they they, they constantly crash on off camber left handers, yeah. That might be it. make up a tailored um, uh, kind of spoke to that performance wheel sort of thing. So. But you think in broad terms, it, it's roughly define what you think kind of makes up performance um, as detailed or as broad as you like, um, and then kind of go from there, really. Um, and as I said, the, the number's arbitrary. It's just a kind of stick in the ground to say, I think I'm roughly here. Okay, got you. Um, so, uh, and it's important to note these fluctuate with time. So I had a, uh, an injury last year, my my uh, fitness performance wheel yeah. <laughs> went down massively because i just you know i couldn't couldn't i was, I was sitting on the couch couldn't couldn't get fitter yeah um uh, and even my some of my skills based stuff you know uh, of uh is definitely down and i'm slowly kind of building that back yeah. up sort of thing but i think it's good it's good to know um kind of how to build up and, and kind of where to put your energy and so on 
Um, another way this manifests itself is, so I often talk to writers about like um, variety is the spice of life. I think it's quite a common sort of saying, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of really believe it within mountain biking. And I, I think myself included, um, especially since lockdown, um, where we've kind of got used to our local trails and so on. Yeah. We tend to ride, keep riding the same stuff again and again and again. Yeah. And then you go to, for, you know, some of your listeners, I'm sure, um, sure kind of uh, race and so on. You go to a race and you're like, oh, I've <laughs> never ridden. Even like soil like this yeah. or or ground like this, or, you know, you, you can go to all different and your tires react hugely different. And all of a sudden the setup that you think works amazingly yeah. no longer works uh, or doesn't work quite as well as you'd like. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd often encourage people to ride lots of different locations and so on. And then it also, it highlights, um, so this is like a really common one um, with, I, I keep going back to jump, sorry. Uh, but like people said, oh, I'm really good at my local jump. So this is like a common email I'd get. Um, I, I'm really good at jumping here and here. I went to, um, uh, I don't know, some of it's got a bit more progressive jumps like uh, Revolution used to or Dovey or By Park Wales, you know, all, all of these like different trails. And they're like, oh, I can't, I can't ride though. I, like, I don't know how to jump there. Yeah. Uh, some of it would be psychological and so on, but sometimes it's also, uh, and if, I don't know if you've ever spoken to like a trail builder before. I think that'd be a, a really interesting one, but they all have a slight um, kind of uh, flavor of how they build okay. a jump, yeah. for example. So their, their lips will typically be quite similar. If you only ever ride jumps in uh, one area. You'll yeah. get very used to that style of lip. Yeah. And then if you go, if you, kind of constantly widen and broaden that spectrum of uh, experience base um, and riding lots of different locations, you'll you'll get much, much better at riding yeah. lots of different types of lip and so on. The um, biggest thing that improved my riding in the last, say, five years, so I used to live, it's not, it's only about 10 miles away from each other, but I used to live in Saddleworth for anybody who's local, a lot of people aren't. So there, the majority of the riding I did was bridal way. It was like wide open, not many corners, fast like you know you could easily do 30 mile an hour but there wouldn't be that many corners and then i went riding with for the first time when i moved into our new house four years ago something like that and he took me to the local woods now that was steep muddy off camber i literally spent the whole time on my bum like i was either like some of the bits had attempt but i was that nervous on it that i was just slamming on the brakes and over the back wheel now you know how that goes on a steep descent so the front wheel was just flipping and i was off um the rest of the time I just slid down um so like that I was like what am I doing it was the middle of winter like deep mud so steep I was like how does anybody ride this but I could see that they did because he did in front of me um and from that point I kind of made an effort to go back to the trails I picked that absolute easiest trail that we rode and then I just started sectioning parts of it so I couldn't do the whole trail but I was like right these top two corners like the first trail he took us to it was kind of like a steep turn through the woods and then there were these massive boulders you had to get through and the only way you did it is literally like stopping flicking your back wheel around going flipping your back wheel the other way and then going around so i spent i think two hours just practicing on that section and then after two hours i went from not being able to do it at all to being able to get through it comfortably with speed and then i'd work on the next section and the next section and for me personally at the time i'd never ridden anything that was even close to that steep so there's a there's one section which is just a load of really steep berms and then the type of trails you can't stop on like mm. when you're in you're in you have to yeah, ride to yeah. the bottom like you cannot stop um but a lot of it for me was just i'd spend time practicing a couple of corners 
But just being in the steep environment made me not nervous of it anymore because I'd be there for two hours. I didn't even notice at the time that's what was happening. But when I arrived, I was really nervous. And then all of a sudden, it wouldn't look as steep. And it's really weird because now if I go back to some trails that four years ago used to be unridably steep in my head back over Saddleworth Way, I look at them and think, I could do that like one-handed and closing one eye. Like it just doesn't look steep, but it literally changes your perception of it. But for me, what you're talking about riding different trails, it was to start off with trying to do all of the trails with him was way beyond my comfort zone. It was too much. Like I just spent my whole time sliding down the side of the hill, but then going back and building up bit by bit by bit really helps. And now I can ride all of the trails that, you know, he showed me and I feel comfortably. And now I actually enjoy it. So now I'll go back and I ride the old trails. I just found so boring now. Like I realized I could have been doing this on a hardtail the whole time. Like it's just not challenging. So yeah, I totally agree in the riding different trails. There was, um, you heard of the Ride Companion podcast? Yeah. Yeah, so I was listening to one of those the other day. I forget his name. He's an Enduro rider. Dan, Dan Wolf, is that right? Irish guy? Yeah. So he was on the other day and they asked him a question around what does somebody need to be a good Enduro racer? And I didn't know where he was going to go with it. But the first thing he said is that they need to be great at riding different trails. So he says whenever he goes on a ride, he doesn't ride the same trail twice. He always rides different trails, which I found was interesting because... When I'm trying to get faster, I'll ride the same trail on a ride five times. And I can appreciate why that's beneficial because you're hitting the same corner over and over and over again. It does improve your skills. But I thought it was interesting that he just goes out and rides every trail differently throughout a ride. Yeah. And it's different horses, of course, I think. Um, You know, we do a lot of obviously working with clients and so on. I think it needs to... I generally stay away from absolutes like always. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't think that's a, you're all, you're always from, if you always, if you use an always like an absolute yeah. like that, you're going to limit something Yeah, because you're not going to be doing something else. Um, so for example, so going so some underlying philosophies and principles at uh, a liners, we have um, skills so that's what most people book onto coaching for or what yeah. they think they kind of book onto coaching for or kind of what they want to get out of it and so on. Uh, and then um, psychology and methodology. So they're like our three pillars, if you will. But everything we do is, is, is based on those uh, kind of works and those three pillars. And how they work together is if you're trying to achieve a skill, so like a, an outcome, like I want to get better at uh, jumps or riding steeps in, in in your example there. If you just go out there and don't adopt an appropriate methodology for what you're looking to achieve. So in other words, like your example of I went out um to the for the, with this this chap, this kind of guy you're riding with, and if you you couldn't do full runs doing yeah. all that on the first day, it wouldn't that was an inappropriate methodology to oh, okay. try to ride Got that trail in full runs all day from the from right from the off yeah and if you don't adopt the right methodology your psychology will be detrimental you know will, be, will, will suffer yeah in that you, i was scared to go back to yeah. those trails after exactly that, after that first time exactly yeah. because you know our, our brains are there to in part to to help us survive and to protect us and to um to seek um good experiences and, and sometimes we need to challenge ourselves yes that's good but there's a difference between challenge and threat um, and the brain's quite um, 
likes to know the, the kind of difference in that. Like we like to expand and, and challenge ourselves, but we don't want to threaten ourselves, i.e. put ourselves in harm's way for, for no apparent sort of reason sort of thing. So the brain likes to be challenged. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of um, uh, your kind of dopamine, serotonin, uh, epinephrine, sort of that whole uh, chemical um, production sort of systems in your brain are there to reward you as you learn. You know, that's a big part of what our, our brains are there to do is to help us to learn, to store information, to then progress on to the next thing sort of thing. And we get a dopamine hit when we learn. Um, so doing something new, challenging something is really good. Um, but if we threaten ourselves, i.e. The, the current level we're at yeah. is well below the the ask of the trail, for example. Yeah. It's very difficult. It's very rare that you'd get something really positive come out of that. Sometimes you do, like a bit of awareness and so on. But in general, it's kind of difficult. So you've kind of got to match your challenge to kind of where you're at mm -hmm. kind of at the time. So everything's kind of based on those three things. So if you ad uh, adopt the right methodology, um, you'll generally, uh, you're more likely to, to then adopt the right psychology, i.e. I can do this. Uh, I'm yeah. looking forward to this. I'm not, you know, it may be, or getting a bit of butterflies, but I'm not absolutely petrified. Yeah. Um, and that you're therefore more likely to adopt the right skills. Yeah. Because when, and we've probably, I know I've been here myself as well. And so sometimes we go that bit beyond our comfort zone and bit beyond our limit, if you will. And instantly the brain starts to uh, tell us to, to cramp up essentially. So you often like a really common example of this is like the elbows drop. Yeah. Uh, and if you've been on a, <clears throat> sorry, on, a, on an A-line course before, you'll know I talk a lot about breathing. And when I'm asking the clients to do certain things, even like, in what we call a, a bike gym, which is essentially like a, a car park space, when they're really concentrating, you'll find they stop hold breathing. Breath. They hold <laughs> yeah, their breath, yeah. yeah. And what does that do? It Tense tenses up, the muscles. It, and all of a sudden, you, you, you know, you're not riding as fluid. So like, mm. if I'm ever feeling nervous or whatever, and I really encourage this with clients, and we work a lot with clients on this as well, sometimes it's just about having a good breath, drop in, feel that relaxation, that, that detention yeah. in the elbows and in the knees and so on. Uh, and then you're, you're, you're more likely to drop in a bit more supple uh, and a bit more confidently as you drop in. Um, but those three pillars, they, they all work together. So it's going to be really hard to, um, uh, to, to ride really effectively in a confident way when you were not uh, applying the right methodology. And just going in a really long-winded way back to your kind of point, um, sometimes that will be riding, uh, you know, a different trail every every run. Yeah. Sometimes it will also be sessioning yeah. uh, uh, and so on. And actually that session mentality sometimes allows you, again, it goes back down to feedback loops. So as you session something, you get that instant feedback. If you then just go onto another trail every time, mm -hmm. like that's always what you do. You never allow your brain and your, um, your, your body and muscle memory and so on to actually understand, Gosh. okay, that didn't feel good, but why didn't it feel good uh, for this reason? Yeah. Okay, what was if I do this? And it's kind of like being a little bit of a scientist there, like, okay, what was to do this? What was to do? Oh, okay, that made, ah, oh, that really yeah. worked. Ah, oh, that really, and that then solidifies learning for going forward. So if you only ever ride uh, different trails every time, it, it offers less of that. So, And as well, I think if we take 
Dan as an example, I may have quoted him wrong. He may not have said every single time, I suppose. One thing from that that is interesting is that I can possibly take away the wrong thing as well and then apply that to yeah, my riding. So does, that's yeah. quite interesting breaking it down because you take it as gospel. Yeah. As well, if you do break down that with him, so he's a pro rider at the absolute top of his game. Yeah. So I'm guessing here, but I suppose for him to get better at enduro, he needs to be able to ride new trails as fast as he possibly can so mm-hmm. maybe his limiting factor at the highest possible level is being able to ride a new trail at absolute race pace so maybe mm-hmm. for him he does need to improve being able to go down a trail for the very first time and ride it at race pace mm-hmm. but for us mere mortals we need to be able to corner properly and stay relaxed yeah, and jump yeah. and break and so yeah, yeah that makes sense actually i suppose uh, and just to flip it on its head again um just uh, not thinking um uh, about Dan, but just you know anyone um just it's a really important distinction to make that different methodologies have different outcomes and, and kind of what you're wanting to achieve and so on so sessioning for example yeah helps in like real simplified terms it helps heighten your overall stance uh, yeah. sorry your over, overall um speed okay. so by or, or kind of performance or, or kind of skill because you are rounding out and becoming a better at that one thing your absolute speed gets better. Yeah. The other method, i.e. going on doing lots of different tracks every time, allows you to ride as close to that absolute speed in more scenarios. Um, So it's not to say one's better than the other. I'm definitely not saying that. And what I'm saying is we need a variety of both. Okay. So it's good to go out and do the sessioning because that'll increase your absolute speed. But it's also good to do, go out and ride different trails in every run to increase how close or to, to to shorten the gap between how close you can ride at or as close to your absolute speed at a trail that you don't actually know. Yeah. You know, you don't know exactly what's coming up around every corner. Yeah. Or like, even if it's a trail that you know. So I've been, um, I'd like to do some races this year again uh, after a few years kind of hiatus. And um, so I, I'm now blending those two together. I, I'm trying to ride trails that i haven't ridden in a while yeah and go out on rides where i do different trails on every run but i'm also blending that with on some rides i go out and have a warm-up cool down and so on but in the middle i ride the same trail four or five times to yeah. increase my absolute okay yeah that makes sense that's interesting what races are you doing i don't know yet oh, it'll okay. be some of the welsh series i'd imagine oh, okay um, cool yeah I, I used to race uh more often than not um or quite often back in the day and um I didn't like getting tied into series because I then go, it's, it's quite expensive to race, isn't yeah. it? And it's a big weekend and I've got, you know, kids yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's a big family commitment. And so I, I'm more like picking the races that I like the venue or the track. Um, so I wouldn't go to a complete pedal fest, for example. Um, but I'd like to go to ones that really challenge me, like like uh, Langollen or places yeah. like that. I, I love steep tracks and, yeah. and that sort of stuff. So more technically orientated tracks, I guess. Well, you just kind of, on that note then, you said obviously you've got two kids that keep you plenty busy enough, but you also yeah. want to improve your skills and your fitness. Yeah. How does somebody who is really time poor, who may only be able to ride once or twice a week, how do they maximize? Because I imagine we're kind of sat here talking about specifically improving, but then before any of that, you have to actually focus and have the intention on improving don't you because a lot of people just go out and ride and there's certainly nothing wrong with that but if somebody just goes out and rides twice a week what would be the first steps for them to think yeah i want to improve 
just improve in general? What what should they do first? And then to follow on from that, how do they maximize those two rides a week that they do have to improve? Because they probably don't want to spend one of those rides in a car park. Not that you would suggest they do that. Yeah. So um I think first of all, first and foremost, it's about understanding what does success look like. You say one, you know, yeah. but you know, someone says it improve. Well, what does that what does that look like at the end of the day? Um is it actually just being able to get around the course? Is it um, being able to improve on a result? Is it to um, just enjoy the, the weekend? You know, what does success look like? Yeah. And from there, you can start to fill in the blanks a little bit. Um, without having like a uh, a case study to kind of offer real kind of yeah. deep insight into, I'd say um, how I'd work with the client. I wouldn't necessarily go into it in, in kind of always talk about it in the, you know, these very uh, outwardly ways, but I'd be assessing a, some form of um, uh, performance wheel. So where can we get the most bang for the buck? Yeah. What types of things, what, what does success look like? What, where are you trying to be successful? Um, so if, for example, uh, somebody's trying to be successful in an enduro race, um, but they only train like a downhiller, well, there's, you know, the, the, there's a bit of a disconnect there mm. or vice versa. Um, so if, for example, like, I think that's probably quite common now, actually, that there's people get loads of trail bike time, but not necessarily as much downhill bike time. So if they're wanting to be, if success for them looks like um, uh, performing really highly or, or performing a certain way at a downhill race, well, then, the, you know, there needs to be some sort of balance in their kind of training. And then it's about understanding, well, where are you going to see the kind of the, the biggest kind of reward? So if fitness as yeah. an example is so re- is your clients are, or a client is really struggling with fitness but actually one of those if they're riding twice a week is kind of in this hypothetical scenario hypothetical person but actually maybe one of those rides needs to be more fitness orientated yeah. and then uh, the other one could be more kind of skills orientated um again without having that kind of case study it's really just about being as well-rounded as you can mm. I, I think um Especially, you know, thinking about modern enduro nowadays, especially in, in, in the UK, um, we roughly know what to expect, if, especially if you've done a few races before. Um, you roughly know, you, you're generally given um, a, uh, a distance guide. So, you know, it's going to be five trails over at a national level, sort of 40-ish K, maybe something like that, 35 K, maybe 50 K, you know, it can be big. And we know it's going to pretty much in the UK, it's, it's going to be all pedal. Uh, you, you're not going to be getting a, a, a lift up to the top or anything. So we know it's a, a, a quite a significant fitness requirement. So it's then about building that into um, kind of your plan. How we work with clients, uh, and something I commonly talk about is this idea around training day rides versus match day rides. So within mountain biking, we are very, um, it's quite common to do what's been, what's known as what I call a match day rides, where basically we kind of we get out of our van or we drive to our venue, we get out of, out of our van or car or whatever. Um, you just sit on the bike, you think, "Yep, that's all right," and then you pedal off. There's, there's no like real stretching or kind of anything going on. Uh, and then you ride up a hill, down a hill, up a hill, down a hill, up a hill, down a hill, three or four kind of runs. You think, "Oh, that was good," and then you end up back at your car and you then sit back down and. Um, perhaps go to the pub and then kind of go home that's a, a classic like match day ride uh, and they're really good they're they're really important I'm, I'm not saying don't do those at all but if that's all we ever do 
we then we, we miss out on what's what I call training day rides, which sounds a bit more formal and perhaps less fun or, or whatever. But I find that actually, uh, and when people get into them, they're actually yeah, fun, really fun. Yeah, if, equally, if, if if not more, because we we create what's what I call the kind of the yes factor, where you get that real dopamine hit when you um, improve on something. when you prove on something, you, you kind of give you that feedback loop. Uh, and what a training day ride it's very much more kind of skills based and um uh kind of technique focused sort of thing and again us being uh, a being very sort of client-centered we don't have a fixed model of what a training day ride looks like and that will look differently to all all of our clients mm-hmm. and uh, i often talk to people you know what works for you what constraints do you have what parameters are you working with this within and we can start to build up from there and so for some, that looks like, say they've got two hours or an hour and a half. Um, two hours is about my my limit with a young family and work and blah, blah, blah. Um, it will be, rather than designing a, a two-hour loop, which would be a mat, typical match day ride, I'd uh, look at maybe designing a, an hour's loop or an hour and a quarter, or an hour and a half sort of loop and spending that remaining time. So still going out for the two hours, but where I session something. Yeah. And then within that, become very technique focused in that, and kind of um, behavioral focused rather than outcome focused. So, so like a really common thing when I'm out coaching and sometimes uh, talk about it with clients so they can kind of see it, especially in Greenside Wood, it's really quite common that because it's quite, uh, the laps, they're only like a, a minute, a yeah. minute and a half. People do multiple laps. What typically you'll find is we're, we're sessioning a section and a cl- uh, another person, you know, general uh, rider will, be, will come down and they'll ride say said corner at a given speed and they'll go off and uh and then we wait normally at 10 15 20 minutes uh, we're riding in the midtime we're not just waiting for that person yeah. to come <laughs> and uh Stood that shiver. yeah yeah <laughs> just hoping that they come back no, and then uh 10 15 20 minutes or whatever uh, later you'll often see that same rider come back yeah um and they'll come through and they'll come through the same speed and the same technique um so if there was something that we noticed that was perhaps slightly off or whatever um could be a balance or a posture type thing or uh, they're not optimizing other cornering techniques for example um they'll come through with those same limiting factors and so on and that isn't to poke judgment it's got nothing to do with that it's just to reinforce that on match day rides we typically ride towards our limit and we just reinforce the actions we're doing yeah on a training day ride we add in this kind of um more uh, behavioral focus where you're allowing that feedback loop uh, and that kind of instant feedback loop. And then uh, importantly, you're adding a, uh, some time to correct or to change or to play with it and start to understand the wider picture. So um, I'd really encourage for someone who is wanting to perhaps, you know, improve or, you know, go back to the original question uh, this year is, is just to think about what does success look like? What, what would they like to achieve? Uh, but then also what methods are they really employing to achieve that thing that they're trying to to do? Uh, and then methods within methods as well. So like, are you working, uh, perhaps a fit, are you working on some fitness? Are you working on nutrition? Are you working on, um, uh, on your skills and so on? And, and how round is your profile? And, you, you know, some people, I go into this with loads of detail. Uh, some people, it's just a simple sort of question. Rate your nutrition on one to 10. Yeah. Rate your, you know, that's a really, really simple, like something your your listeners can uh, take away from it. Just, uh, we call them rulers. Um, so one to 10 rulers, just rate yourself on, on, a, on a one to 10. And it's not an objective, you don't have to tell anyone or, or whatever. Yeah. There's no like 
someone, you know, checking up on your numbers or whatever. But just give yourself an honest sort of appraisal of kind of where you think these things are. Yeah. And if your nutrition's a five out of ten, well, what does a six out of ten look like? Don't mm. try to do a ten out of ten. Yeah. Because that's miles from where you have been. And uh, I think I listened to one of your podcasts earlier on the year and uh, I think it was around January and going hard in January yeah. or like the fitness side of things, so but you've dropped off by February. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like, no, we're not saying that. Uh, we're saying, so what does a, a six out of 10 look like? Okay, so what feasibly, if a six, if you're currently doing a five and this is what a six you think looks like, well, what feasibly within that six could you could you do? Let, yeah. Let's take small steps. Um, I think uh, so. a lot of people struggle to do that as well because... I think people go through let's let's say let's say weight loss as an example. People want to lose weight for weeks and months and think about losing weight, and then when it comes to actually trying to lose the weight, they have a ton of motivation, so they want to go for a ten out of ten, mm. and it's really hard if someone's a five out of ten, like you've said, to get somebody to just do a six out of ten when they're really motivated because mm. they want to do the ten out of ten. What they don't see is often when they do do that 10 out of 10 is that it's so hard to do a 10 out of 10 because, mm. I mean, a 10 out of 10 nutrition, as an example, would be weighing absolutely every meal, logging every meal. I used to, when I was a PT in the first company that I worked sort of at, there was a another PT who was a fitness model, a female fitness model. So she was competing on stage in a bikini, really, really fit, looked really like great. And she weighed out every single meal. And I remember once going to a restaurant with her and she was, she took a meal with them, gave it to the restaurant and asked them to microwave it for her and bring it out. Wow. So that's like a 10 out of 10 nutrition, which 99.9% .9 of people, myself included, are just not going to want to do that. Yeah. So I think the big thing for a lot of people, like you said, is just trying to go from a five to a six or a seven rather than trying to go to that absolute huge leap forward which is just too much and is unsustainable yeah i just had to write some things on my phone just to make sure i don't because i thought i think there's two things that kind of really stand out to me there um and it's something uh i, I don't know how often it's kind of talked about but one is around um i think coaches really help uh, and i'm not just talking about uh a line and uh you know um skills coaches but uh, being accountable um, I think that yeah. really, really helps. So uh, in my, going back to my injury, I kind of had last year, um, I was, uh, I got a, a, a fitness or a coach to kind of support me through my rehab. And one thing that helped massively was being accountable. Yeah. Um, and that I knew that he was going to check on my, we'd have a weekly check-in uh, or kind of bi-weekly check-in and so on. And I knew that he could see what I'd done. So I knew I needed to do my rehab because if he, he'd ask what, and I'm paying all this money i need i don't want to waste my money there's no yeah. point doing that so uh, one thing i think coaches can really help with is being accountable yeah I think that's a really really helpful thing and then just going back to your motivation uh thing um for all the people who like doing a, a bit of reading you can look up a, a theory in in psychology called self-determination theory uh, it's essentially it's a theory of motivation uh, and kind of i'm gonna speak really um kind of broadly and simplify the model here because it, it does get a bit more complex but essentially, um, it's trying to understand how do we move from um, extrinsic motivation yeah. uh, and intrinsic to intrinsic motivation. Because what we know from research is that for somebody to to stick with something more long term, yeah, intrinsic motivation is way more powerful than extrinsic motivation. Yeah. So, in other words, in this in your example around weight loss, the extrinsic reward is you know is seeing a certain number on the scales yeah. or, or whatever that might be. 
typically extrinsic rewards get less meaningful mm -hmm. over time or they're less um uh, they're less consistent and so on and not to say that they're not important they definitely are uh, that they really help when somebody's not motivated to do something but finding what that you're uh, how to become intrinsically motivated to um, secure behavior it, it is way more powerful um uh, long term uh and the the model then goes into other ways you can do that around right um uh, or having autonomy and confidence and um uh and relatedness or like doing with others and so on that kind of help or, or influence that kind of relationship there was but, a real sorry to interrupt you yeah. there was a real on instagram saw this week last week and i'm gonna massacre exactly what it said but i thought it was really interesting and it was um it said the person who only wants to win the marathon oh so the person who loves the idea of winning the marathon is going to be beat by the person who loves running yeah yeah and that's the exact same kind of thing yeah. isn't it where yeah. like the vision of winning the marathon but the person who just loves going out running every single day yeah. because they love doing the thing yeah yeah and it's like i i know um i don't know these people at all so i might be speaking out of time a bit you know people like um speaking in a, in a mountain bike related sort of context but people like greg minara and so on and steve pete and they've had such long careers and i don't know if they were they had more of this sort of in, intrinsic motivation but i would hazard a guess that they did yeah in that um it wasn't just about the reward yeah it was about the doing it was about the the being there it was about it was more than just winning the winning yeah at the end of the day i'm sure that was a big part yeah of it, of I, I, I can't imagine that your 14th win feels miles better than your 13th win yeah and it's really common going well beyond mountain bike now but across all sport that you hear people um talk about you know olympics is like a real classic one um because it's every four years mm. um but oh, they're really focused on that outcome mm. going in four years time in four in these cycles and there's only normally three two to three times they can look to achieve this because that's yeah, sort of 12 of years and that they might be out of the window then um but then they get it or they achieve it and they're like oh yeah that wasn't quite as good as yeah, <laughs> i thought yeah, it was gonna yeah. be uh, and um not to say that you know you can perhaps get rid of that but it's gonna have less of an impact on a person perhaps well-being so on. i'd imagine if if there's some in if there's a lot of intrinsic motivation and uh, and so on built into that as well as the extrinsic if everything yeah. relies on extrinsic reward yeah so like re just relating it back to uh, perhaps the listener base here a little bit more if you go to uh, put all your eggs in one basket at say ard rock or ardmores this year or yeah. in Northumbria or something like that and everything is about the result everything is about the result then you know, the, the the race comes and goes and you didn't quite achieve for whatever reason the kind of thing you're you might think I don't know. That was awful. Like yeah. I hated it. Like you come away just on your drive home, like think, feeling awful. Was actually it's because everything you've tied into that is all around an extrinsic outcome. Yeah, uh, something that's not in your realm of influence and so on. Um, and so, it, it, you, it, having extra, I'm not um, saying we shouldn't have extrinsic rewards. We definitely should because they they they're the things that help motivate us in the winter to get on the bike trainer when it's cold and damp and so on thinking about it. but thinking of them closer to the time and so on and as we go into it if that's the only thing you've got yeah then it, it can be quite difficult so having a, a balance is is really key so um that's another good take home i'd say is is, is think about why you want to achieve what you you set out to achieve yeah. and actually if it's all outcome based which tends to be what people kind of think of um what other things what else do you want to get out of it that's mm. more for you spend time with your mates 
you know, having that, that banter, you know, perhaps grow a little bit in your mountain biking experience, riding a new place, you know, yeah. that can be, you know, part of it and all these other th- yeah. sort of things. I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate about helping people improve the fitness on the bike, for me personally, mm. I am entering a couple of races this year and I feel very focused on that. But for me, it's about the impact it has on the rest of the lives as well. Mm. So one of the reasons I'm so passionate about helping people get fitter on the bike is because to get fitter on the bike, you need to start training off the bike. And that involved going to the gym or training at home. And there's kind of loads of benefits to that. So let's just say you start training at home two days a week. When you're doing that, you start to tolerate pain. And, you know, you're putting up when you're doing the press-ups, you keep going through that. That hurts. That gets you stronger, which builds your confidence. And then it builds discipline. So if you say that you're going to do a bodyweight workout at 7 a.m. and you do it, you're building almost that discipline that discipline muscle. So there's mm-hmm. kind of the training side of it. So it impacts your riding but then it also makes you more confident and then as well as that you might say right i'm going to improve my nutrition because i want to feel better on the bike and when you improve your nutrition you do feel better on your bike Mm. but then also your mental health starts feeling a bit better and you're feeling more switched on and more awake and you concentrate more Mm. and it's kind of the broader impact like very much my training and riding and eating well for me now is just a way of life like Mm. i definitely don't eat anywhere near a 10 out of 10 but I'm focused on my nutrition every day. Like I make sure I eat well every day. I can't wake up and have sugar puffs for breakfast, which for my American followers is like a really sugary cereal, (laughs) although I love them. (laughs) You know, and you can't eat pizza for lunch and then a ready meal because you just feel terrible. Like um, when we go to, um, we tend to go to Disney in the summer to Florida. Love it. Just like go and the food in Disney specifically is, you know, nowhere near as well as at home. And you love it for two weeks, but after about a week, you're like, it's crazy the difference in my energy levels, like how sluggish I feel, how I just don't feel as sharp. Like I'm not thinking as straight. Someone will ask me a question and you feel more dopey. Um, And the difference is huge. So for me personally, kind of bringing that back to what you were saying about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is that for me, the race is the extrinsic motivation. It's the goal. And I always make sure I have maybe like a financial goal that we're aiming for. So like yourself, we're renovating our house, which costs far more money than you ever realize yeah, until yeah. you start doing it. <laughs> so you've got the extrinsic motivation there. But then the intrinsic motivation for me is that I just love doing all of those things and knowing mm. that each one affects a different one. Yeah, And I think that's what's so so fascinating about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. That was a tangent for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you um talking about Disneyland in Florida? Have you do you have you had churros there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, they yeah, get pleasure love there. Them. Yeah, I could live off them. Have you been before? Yeah, a couple nah, of times. Like, oh, have you really to Florida? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't mean too many people who've gone. I know Zach's been. We've chatted chatted about it. Yeah. But yeah, no, we love it. We um, my my family all used to go to Disney Florida. Like my family being like my uncles and whatnot, and we never went when we were younger. And we went to Disneyland Paris and at the time I hated Disneyland Paris. So I think my parents thought I wouldn't like Florida, Um, but I'd always kind of wanted to go because they loved it. And then me and Sophie, when we got together 10 years ago, we'd been together about a year. We're this close to booking a holiday to Thailand and we're in the Trafford Centre. We're literally about to book it. And then Sophie did some Googling and found out that there were some riots or something in Thailand or someone had been murdered on a beach or something like that. She's like, right, that's not safe. Can't go there. So we're like, why don't we go to Florida? So we went and then I think we've been 
seven or eight times then. Oh, like we man. just absolutely love it. Like yeah. live to go to uh <laughs> to Florida. But yeah, no, we absolutely love Never it. Start a Florida podcast as well. I, know, so, yeah, I think I a lot of people hold my own on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude, we've been to like most restaurants and most of the hotels there and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen YouTubers that that's their living is like they go around rating it and talking about yeah, it. And stuff, yeah, yeah. And have huge followings, way bigger than mine. They'll have like millions of views yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, it's big. Um I think things because it's so big there, so large. If you've not been to Disney Florida, you don't know how big it is, do you? Yeah, so, it's massive. So yeah. a city in it, or like a region, really, in it. Yeah, 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 it's ginormous. Yeah, um, boring anybody to death now who yeah, doesn't sorry. go to Florida. Yeah. No, it was me who started it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you talk about minimizing risk, which we've talked about before. Mm. I think that there's a common misconception that pro riders don't have fear they're not worried about anything they'll just send like you know 10 story drops and just without a care in the doubt you see the people who do rampage but i think the more people that I speak to like we had jack redden who's a down downhiller on and he definitely still feels fear things make him nervous it's just that his skill level is so far beyond yeah what ours is um what are your views around around that if that was a well-phrased enough question around fear yeah around fear and i think the misconception that the best riders in the world don't get scared and that's what there's a misconception i think from less skilled riders or less fast riders whatever that pro riders just take the head out mm. and don't feel fear and that's why they can go 50 mile an hour down a hill mm. but the more you speak to i don't think that's actually true no certainly not I, i'd um agree with that the um i would take it depends on how you define it, really. So, like, what is uh, fear? Is a uh, you know? Do you think it's a psychological or is it a feeling? You know, is a, a sort of response. So, broadly speaking, we have two sort of ways of fear. You have kind of semantic and and sort of cognitive sort of thoughts. Um, so, are you having a uh, thoughts about things that could go wrong and, and that's kind of creating fear or, or or is it semantic which is that physical so that's like sweaty palms and stuff so me personally um, not so uh, you know i i more suffer with semantic kind of fear anxiety sort of thing um so i'll be dropping into say uh, i remember years ago did a race at, at langollen um for the welsh Langoflin, like try to get pronunciations right and um it was in the woods track and the th there wasn't a kind of conscious thoughts around fear, um, which it, just for those who don't know, is, is a really, really steep track, um, like really steep. And there weren't many thoughts around fear, but my heart rate was really elevated in my, my palms. So that's how I'd kind of recognize that there was kind of fear. And fear is a natural um, emotion and feeling. Uh, and all these things that you kind of hear sometimes as little one second memes or whatever online about fear and uh, and this sort of thing they're, they're not true they're, they're those um processes in our head are, are there to protect us and are there to keep us alive and you know um they're, they're to keep us safe and well-rounded and so on so we don't go too far um the the whole thing about taking the brain out i also don't uh don't really think happens in the sense that what they're really saying is, I believe, is that they've ticked off enough of the boxes and they feel reassured enough and their confidence bucket is full enough that when they're dropping into X race run as a professional World Cup racer or so, um, 
they are not having to think about yeah. fear of can I do X, Y, or Z. It's more that they've reassured themselves. And I, I'd put money, and I've, I've worked in mountain biking and so on within the world of sport and exercise psychology and so on as mental performance coach. And um, I know that they, uh, some, some, you know, people at the at kind of elite end of sport still talk about things that kind of, that, that we talk about, whether perhaps the exact um, sort of, theme of what they're talking about is just slightly different they're talking about time or, or, or kind of a they're not thinking about perhaps like a, a jump they're talking about a you know how fast can i do that or doing it at that speed sort of thing and so on they definitely still have fit and that's a good thing to have mm. if we didn't have it i think there'd be a lot more injuries and yeah, so on so true, yeah. it's it's a part of your brain just recognizing there is something here that that is potentially a threat or a challenge um and it's about then how you process that and something like that to kind of action really about what, what do you want to do about it? Um, I think what, where the elites have kind of come to is that um, they typically have done the things that they need to have done, but as they're dropping into a, a run, they've got a healthy amount of fear um, and a healthy amount of nerves uh, and so on. Cause nerves aren't, they're often perceived as bad mm-hmm. and they've got the stigma around being bad, but they're, they're not really. They're yeah. just, just a feeling to to kind of take us to take note of something they feel bad they can be yeah. useful yeah yeah exactly yeah and if they feel bad to the point where they yeah, really level, feel bad it? yeah it's yeah. then perhaps we've we've entered into that th- that threat threshold yeah, as opposed to that challenge far. and a world cup downhill racer they're not going to tracks that, that are like a challenging them to the point where they're saying can i get down it's more mm. around the, the kind of that speed kind of relationship attractive sort of relationship and then it's just about how much risk are they willing to kind of put into that and yeah. so on. And they also want the outcome and so on. So that kind of fear relationship is more about how you process it, how you understand it, how you define it. Um, yeah. And then uh, also how what you do go on and kind of do about it. But that whole thing about taking the brain out, I really don't think that as a, you know, it, as us mere mortals kind of think of it, I don't think that's actually what happens. Yeah, I think yeah. what actually happens, they've, they've ticked enough of the boxes out that they can remove their head yeah. so to speak in, because in they just crowds. know that they're prepared because they know they've done, do done, done good preparation that's yeah. right and, and for those um and it's a big reason why I, I like working in in psychology and so on is that somebody just doesn't it's not just a tick box once it's done it's not done yes yeah. you, you then have um you know you, you see it all the time like people have good seasons bad seasons they have uh you know good race uh, you know stronger race a less uh, you know a weaker race and so on uh, and often that comes down to like the psychology of it. You know, what happened on the run up to that? What happened in their wider life context? What happened on the morning or the day? Is it the type of track conditions? Have they done well there in the past? All these types of things um, kind of will influence their kind of perception of kind of what they're about to do and therefore how much fear or, or not that they potentially have. But yeah. yeah, this whole conception around elite riders or elite athletes don't have fear is is misplaced I don't yeah. think that's quite right I think on that note there's a I've as you think about it more you start to notice that actually pro riders do feel that fear mm. and you only notice it very subtly if you watch Rebel Hardline and you'll see interviews they always talk about they were really scared to hit that first one yeah um, and I was watching Ollie Wilkins and Brendan Fairclough one of their YouTube videos and I think Brendan Fairclough had sent this Canyon Gap 
in his local woods. It was huge. Um, yeah, and, little canyon gap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he took Ollie to ride it, and Ollie was like, he was saying he was scared, and you can see looking at him, he's, he was scared. He was excited as well. He knew he could mm. do it, but it was interesting thinking, oh, they can do that, and they're scared. It's just what scares them is much yeah. a much higher level. Um, you mentioned before about defining that feeling, though, because nerves and excitement elicit a very similar physiological response yeah, yeah, yeah. and i remember at the olympics a few years ago it wasn't me who noticed this but in all the interviews um before or sorry after the athlete had completed whatever sport they were doing the interviewer asked the athlete were you scared or were you nervous and every single one said no i was just excited mm. and what's interesting is they're feeling the exact same physiological response to nerves mm. but they just labeled it in their head as i'm excited mm. rather than nervous so they yeah. literally feel the same feelings that we would feel before doing something yeah we'd label it as nerves and then you might start to go down the rabbit hole of i'm nervous i'm going to tense up i'm not going to do that great they see it as no i'm excited and it's going to help me perform because it's switching my brain on and my heart's yeah, pumping yeah. faster and it's pumping blood to the muscles and i think that's really interesting on that note how important is the language that you use because i've noticed you picked me up a couple of times when i said always before they ever noticed that i said it but you picked me up on it how important is the language that you use for your performance huge i'd say like, i i um often talk about and it may sound a bit laddie da to some people um the relationship you have with yourself and um the brain picks up on the language that we use uh, and it takes it quite uh, uh literally so if you're using things like i hate this like say you're going to a venue um that you know is steep in tech for example and you had a bad experience there and you're like, i don't like that venue instantly your brain's picked up on that and said right Gareth said he doesn't like that venue. We're going to that venue. What do you think? Instantly, my heart rate's going to start going up. I'm going to start to feel nerves. And I've started to associate that. So um, I think that the language that we use um, is kind of really important. And with going back to kind of my kind of practice in psychology and so on, I think it's really important to note that you, you hear lots of like tidbits and so on online. I think that they're great. But there's a there's a deep body of like, well, how what do we do about that, and how do we go about changing that? Yeah, that isn't quick and easy. Uh, and so, us saying in this podcast, for example, that language is really important, uh, and that we shouldn't be saying, you know, like have, you know, so rephrasing is like a really common uh, thing. So you normally go uh, uh, first of all become awareness of, of certain uh, things that you might say. So that's kind of really key through like thought diaries and all different types of methods is more than just that what's a thought diary so just things like um uh it could be before or after a, a, a race or you know any of it it can be at any time people can do them in days you, you essentially just write down your thoughts oh, about okay. a subject or it can be broad again it's really um you know person specific on yeah. kind of what they would like to achieve and so on uh, but you'd be amazed at how much you'll start to realize about your thoughts and about yourself when you start to write things down yeah so that can be a really helpful tool. Uh, and then once you start to become aware of things, you can then start to address them. How do we go about that? So us saying in this um, podcast, uh, language is really important, but how do we go about changing that? It's not as easy as just saying, well, stop, think, stop saying those not bad things yeah, like, and actually saying like a good thing uh, and rephrasing. And rephrasing is really challenging. And actually, um, uh, you, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing. It takes discipline, it takes time and so on. 
And we work with people on these different kind of avenues to kind of um, slowly kind of restructure that really. Um, but yeah, the, the language that we that we use to describe scenarios, outcomes, behaviors, and so on is really important because your brain takes that quite literally and mm. will have a can often have quite a semantic response to that thought. Mm. I'm definitely guilty of saying I can't jump yeah, now yeah. because it's the same thing as if we go back to when I started riding those steep technical trails. At the time, I couldn't ride those steep technical trails. In reality, I'd just not gone to that many steep technical trails before, so I was telling myself that I couldn't. But I still do it now where I say I can't jump, and it's simply because... I don't actually go to places where you can jump, where yeah. there are jump trails because there are none nearby. So I've never taken the time to teach myself. Yeah. Um, and I've noticed, I did it with wheeling. I used to always tell myself I can't wheel it. And that's something that obviously you can practice. So, you know, six, 12 months ago, I could do a pedal wheeler. I can get up any obstacle by doing a little pedal wheeler, but that's yeah, very yeah. different to wheeling a hundred meters down the road. Yeah, yeah. I always used to tell myself, I can't wheelie, I can't wheelie, I can't wheelie. So you never even try. You'll do a little bit and be like, well, yeah, I can't wheelie. So obviously that didn't work. Yeah. And I just challenged that and started to practice wheeling and was thinking, well, there's no reason I can't do it. I've just not taught myself to. Yeah. And the difference over the last, say, 12 months of how my wheeling's got is miles better because you'll just be on a slight incline, a really boring climb. Yeah. You just spend 10 minutes practicing your wheelie. The difference is huge. Yeah, and yeah. it's gone from... I can't wheel it to, oh, I'm getting better at that and then improving my wheeling. Yeah. And you almost like, you, by saying you can't do something, you just cap yourself and yeah. you literally put a cap and as soon as you put that cap on, you can't get through that because you just stop yourself before you even try to do that. Mm. And even just, it's not about thinking, yeah, I'm going to be able to wheel it for a kilometre. Just taking that can't off and using that different language for me allowed myself to just start practicing and then you improve because yeah. you're not automatically telling yourself you can't do it before you've even tried yeah so that, that's a, a definition in uh, research called uh, fixed versus growth mindsets yeah and so a fixed Cold mindset work. has an absolute um so like i can't do something or whatever yeah um and it's like how do we how do we slowly start to restructure that to be more of a growth mindset um so uh you know i can't do that yet or i can't do that because of um or i'm, I'm uh less skilled at that because of x but i'd like to do this through but it just changes it and, yeah. it, and instantly you're again that semantic response to that so if you said i can't jump and i uh, we went out for a ride and i yeah. took you to some jumps you'd be like well, i can't do that yeah. i feel really nervous or i feel a bit crap about myself because of I've, I've you're showing me that i can't do <laughs> yeah, yeah um whereas you say ah oh, if your mindset to it is I do struggle with jumps a bit, but I'd like to improve. Yeah. Um, and I think I know where to, how to start that journey. Then when I took you to jumps, you might be like, oh, well, I can't do those, or I'm struggling with those ones, but maybe that one over there yeah. is all right. Yeah, maybe I'll try that one. And all of a sudden, it's a bit more open to you. And also, as you're going there, you're probably in a bit of better mm. psychology as you go into the into that scenario because you're, you're more um, comfortable. You haven't told yourself you can't do something or you can do something again way harder to do in reality yeah it's yeah like, yeah, yeah. And it, yeah it takes discipline and time and and various tools that are kind of to support that but yeah i'm a big believer in kind of your mental diet and what i mean by that is just the information that you take in on a daily basis and yeah. i think if we take the news as an example with everything with russia now so the media not to get political but the media will latch on to any kind of sentence that somebody says to promote fear so a good example in the last kind of week 
was the news story that conscription would be introduced if we were to go to war with Russia. Mm -hmm. Now, in reality, I think the actual part of that story is if we were to go to war with Russia, in other words, if there was World War III, then your everyday person would have to fight, of course, because it's a world war. We're all going to be fighting. But then that gets taken into a story and the headline is conscription to be introduced in the UK and yeah. everybody loses their heads. Um, I think it's important to pay attention to what's happening in the world. But I find myself, if I do read the news too much, watch the news too much, in COVID it was the same when it was just fear yeah. all around you. Flooded, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Flood yeah. is a good word. Is yeah. If you don't sort of just do 20 minutes a day and if you're doing six hours a day, if you're listening to the news in your car and then you put it on the TV and you go on news websites on your phone and you read a newspaper and then you watch the 10pm. That's like you say, a flood of kind of negativity. Mm. I personally think that's huge for your mental health for one, but then for performance as well, just to mm. keep yourself in a sort of positive mental headspace. Yeah. Is that something that you agree with, have opinions on? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, if, if you're just trying to relate that back to a, a mountain bike um, sort of example, social media and Instagram and scrolling and people looking at typically we follow, um, you follow your friends and stuff, but you, typically people, then people also follow elites. Yeah. You think, Oh, miles away from that. Yeah. Or gosh, they're good. Or, or gosh, you know, they're in this lovely like setting. And so on. like so often like, oh, I'm not doing that. Like, you can quite easily get yourself into um, a sort of negative kind of spiral. So, I definitely kind of agree that I think going back to another, uh, hopefully you're kind of seeing a theme that kind of throughout the podcast is around awareness. Mm. And I think it's just about reflecting back and asking yourself well, where, um, you know, become aware of what, what's, what's healthy, what's not healthy and uh, defining that yourself a little bit. Cause sometimes social media is actually, so again, I'm not actually, I don't actually think social media as a platform is a bad thing. Yeah. But how humans have then started to interact with that platform and digest that platform yeah. is in not all, but, you know, many examples become not necessarily healthy. And healthy is obviously a spectrum. It's not binary. Um, and so understanding how, is that healthy for you full stop? I mean, you do hear in, uh, sometimes people completely remove themselves from it. Uh, and then the elite example, you know, that they, it, they um subscribe to a uh, you know an agency who does their social media for example or something mm -hmm. uh, and that might be just because it is just a negative influence in, the, in their life and they you know uh, or so on i have got any examples there but you know it's that sort of thing um or if it uh is generally or can be a good thing you know it can sometimes i see something or so i very much limit i've got i think i'm allowed on or sorry, allowed i've set my limit on mine for for 20 minutes a day oh uh, it literally stops you yeah yeah so that's cool. 20 minutes and uh and most of that's work yeah <laughs> um doing like social media posts and so on uh but i'll do i will go through every once in a while and uh, and just see what people are up to and i see something oh like that style looks really good i'd like to mimic, and that really influences me positively on my next ride yeah and i think oh well i'll try to add a bit more style in here or here or, or i think i'm trying to get my whips better um you, you know on a jump like oh they're doing that i, I kind of really break it down and like okay i think my uh my hips aren't moving quite early enough or i'm not getting quite enough counter steer on the lip or something so right i'll try to introduce so it can be a really positive thing yeah so i think it's about understanding and having that awareness around what well, is it healthy for you yeah. what are you using it for and um uh, and then also looking much. more broadly um like is it taken away from home life family life all that sort yeah. of stuff 
Because the one thing that social media feeds into, as an example, is uh, again that dopamine response. It instantly gives you that hit. Yeah, on every uh, And that's kind of what we get stuck on and kind of hooked on in, into. Um, but there are other ways to do that as well. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, media um, can be good, can also be negative. And it's about having that awareness and that kind of honesty with yourself. Again, that relationship with yourself to where's good where, where's that line and mm. where do you draw it and what does that look like yeah and that will change that season so like you'll see people um uh, athletes for example they're more likely to come off these things kind of in the summer i don't want to know that somebody's doing really good at the minute or or sometimes people use it as a bit of propaganda i've heard not actually in mountain biking but in other sports i've seen but they not propaganda that's the wrong word sorry um they I use it as, at, they try to portray that actually everything's okay yeah in reality, actually doing it's bad. not because they're they actually they've picked up an injury that they don't want anyone to know about yeah and that's that sort of thing and, and it's not a big injury so like they don't need to tell the world but they've got a small break in their wrists or whatever and actually they need a month off and, yeah um but they don't want the world to know that or sponsors to know that and yeah, all this sort of stuff. yeah so um but as a person digesting that I don't know the person, I might be just be thinking they're having the best time in the world. And yeah, like yeah. it's just about having that relationship with yourself and yeah. uh, and understanding it and and uh just trying to figure out yeah what like, what works for you really. I think the hard thing with social media as well, outside of limiting your time, because I think 20 minutes a day is great. If you're just spending 20 minutes, even if it's 20 minutes scrolling, mm. whether it's positive or negative, that's gonna have a limited effect anyway. Mm. I think if you're scrolling for three hours a day, it's never yeah. gonna be a positive outcome from that. But I think one of the sort of the the dangerous things about social media is you can't choose what you follow. So you follow people, mm. but if you notice when you scroll through your Instagram, look how often it says suggested post. Mm. Every fourth post will be a suggested post from somebody that you don't follow, especially if you keep scrolling for a while. And what that means is that post that other people find interesting will then be pushed to you. Yeah, right, and that's yeah. one thing that I kind of find... I would love to just be able to control my Instagram and my Facebook where it only shows me content from people that I follow because I really genuinely do only follow positive people and business people who put out interesting content and mm. sports people. But then you see all sorts of other stuff that gets pushed to you mm. and that's where it's negative. And the thing is, is that if you it, it knows what, what you want to look at, so it'll show you something. So obviously Sophie's Instagram recommended posts are totally different to what mine are it knows what you stop and what you look at mm. so if you're feeling if you want to lose weight and you're feeling self-conscious at the minute you might stop on a video that's talking about weight loss and then you'll notice that the third post down is another weight loss one and you look at that and then it'll keep showing you stuff now that's good if it shows you a load of positive weight loss stuff showing you how to lose weight but it can also go to the other extreme and you know there's examples of teenagers being shown a load of like anorexic content mm. and then it keeps showing them more and more and more and more that's mm. where it can be bad um that got off on a tangent there but i think the one thing that i have picked up on that you said over and over and over again today is that awareness mm. and i think that'd be a great thing for people to take from this podcast is just the awareness of you're riding what areas can you improve where do where are your weaknesses what you're avoiding all of that i think if you're just aware of everything that you're doing that sounds like it's the best first step people can take to improve yeah yeah i definitely agree with that yeah awareness is key because you can't uh, trying to look at the, think of the right word about fix or um, improve an area without first of all being aware of a that it needs yeah. needs improvement or b that how to do that necessarily yeah definitely yeah, it's always the first step 
Well, I think that rounds off the podcast nicely. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on. Yeah. Um, there'll be links underneath here to link to A-Line so people can get in touch with you if they're in the area or within driving distance and get some coaching. Um, but yeah, no, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. No, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. So yeah, cheers. Appreciate it.